Welcome everyone. We've just uh, got quite a few attendees today as usual, so we're going to wait for everyone to come into the room before we get started. Um, my name is Diana Safier. I work with the Balfour Project and I'm joined today with Sarah Helm and Gideon Levy, who I'll introduce in a moment um, when everyone has come in. While we wait, though, I just want to remind everyone that our strapline for the Balfour Project is peace, justice and equal rights in Israel and Palestine. And our mission is acknowledging Britain, Britain's historic and continuing responsibility to uphold equal rights for the Israeli and Palestinian peoples through popular education and advocacy to persuade the British government to recognize the state of Palestine alongside the state of Israel. Um, before we get started, I also want to uh, remind you all that we have an event on next Thursday, the 16th at 3 p.m. UK time with Dominic Grieve, QC, and Nada Kiswanson, and, um, who's a, a human rights lawyer, and Haggit Ofran from Peace Now. And that is to launch the publication of our souvenir brochure from our Rule of Law conference that we had back in May. Um, this is the hard copy, and we will be launching the electronic version on our website on the 16th, and we'll be having a very interesting uh, conversation with some of the participants of that conference, Dominic and Haggit and Nada. So please do make sure you join us for that. I will post links in the chat box um, in a moment. And now that we've got a lot of people in the room and it seems to have tapered off, that's great. So I'm going to introduce Sarah Helm, who's a former Middle East correspondent for The Independent. And she was a staff correspondent for The Sunday Times and for foreign correspondent for The Independent. She's the author of two books on World War II, most recently, If This Was a Woman, about the Nazi concentration camp for women and her play Loyalty about the Iraq war was staged at the Hampstead Theater in London. And she's now working on a book about Gaza, which we were just discussing, and I can't wait to read it. Um, we're also joined by another journalist, Gideon Levy, who is um, Israeli and currently writing for Haaretz and is also an author. Levy has won prizes for his articles on human rights in the Israeli occupied territories. Um, he was drafted to the IDF in 1974 and served as a reporter for the Israeli army radio. Um, he then worked as an aide to Shimon Peres and then um, who was then the leader of the Israeli Labour Party. And in 1982, he began to write for the Israeli da daily Haaretz. Um, he was also the assistant to the editor-in-chief, and he has written a column called Twilight Zone about the hardships of the Palestinians since 1988. In 2004, Levy published a compilation of articles entitled Twilight Zone, Life and Death Under the Israeli Occupation. So we're really honored to be joined by both of them. Um, they are going to be having a little chat between them, and uh, Sarah's got loads of questions for Gideon, so I think it's going to be um, absolutely riveting. We are going to take some questions from the audience, um, so please do post them in the chat box, and I will relay them later on to them both. So I'm going to hand over to both of you. Thanks, Diana. Um, so, uh, Gideon, first of all, it's fantastic to meet you. I can't believe that we've never met as I've been writing quite a lot about your favourite subject for quite a long time, but our paths don't seem to have crossed. But of course, I'm a huge fan um, and dying to know more about the way you, uh, the way you work and so on. Um, one thing that I, I'd like to start by asking you to tell me a little bit about how you came to be such a very strong critic of uh, the Israeli government and the Israeli treatment of Palestinians in the occupied territories. 
Um, I noticed you said somewhere that when you did start out as a reporter um, in that field, that you didn't really, um, you didn't really understand uh, the, the major problems that existed or the human rights violations that were happening in front of your eyes. You said you were young and brainwashed at that time. Um, so I wondered if you could start by telling us how did that change? Was there one single incident that really brought it home to you? And could you tell us about that? Thank you, Sarah, and thank you, Diana. Uh, I'm really happy to be with you today as the interest in the issues that we are going to discuss today is decreasing, unfortunately, not only in Israel, but recently also in Europe. And therefore, I see such a significance in this kind of occasions still to remind the world that somewhere in the Middle East, there is an apartheid state, somewhere in the Middle East, there is a brutal military tyranny and something in all of us makes us forget, not think about it, not talk about it, and believe that if we will not talk about the elephant in the room, the elephant will just vanish, so it doesn't. And to your question, Sarah, uh, I always say I was a very good boy Tel Aviv or a very good boy Israel, a typical product of the Zionist uh, brainwash system or education system. You can name it as you wish. Really um, a good boy. I served in the army. I did even something which is worse than this, working for Shimon Peres for four years. And only in the late 80s, when incidentally, totally incidentally, I, st I started to travel to the occupied territories, I realized two things. First of all, that this is the place where the identity of Israel is defined. The moral profile of Israel is defined. The moral profile of Israel is not defined in the concert halls in Tel Aviv with all the liberals. The moral profile of Israel is defined in the refugee camps in Gaza and in the West Bank. There were, where Israel is defined. So this was the first insight that I got after a few visits there. And the second one was that there's almost no one to tell the story of the occupation, at least not for the Israeli media. There were then very few journalists who did it. Today, there are even fewer. And then gradually, I came to the conclusion that I would like to dedicate my career to covering the occupation, not to cover the Palestinian people, not to cover the Israelis, to cover the, the occupation. And ever since then, uh, gradually, but very constantly, my political views changed and changed and changed because what I was witnessing, because what I was documenting, because what I saw in my eyes, which so very few Israelis, unfortunately, are not exposed to. And here I am today, much more radical than I was 30, 40 years ago, much less Zionist than I was, practically not Zionist at all, which is almost a crime in Israel, not being Zionist. Can I just up on that? I was, as you raised that, I was just reading something that you, some of the things that you've said and written over the years, 
to remind myself, are you, were you, you were interviewed by my, uh, my former colleague, Robert Fisk, who sadly died recently, um, not so long ago. And I think it was to Robert that you said um, how badly the story was now being told. You said, uh, I can tell you really without exaggeration, if an Israeli dog was killed by Palestinians, it will get more attention in the Israeli media than if 20 Palestinian youngsters would be shot dead by snipers on the fence without doing anything in Gaza. Um, I mean, those kind of things, by the way, I couldn't get away with or I wouldn't be able to have published in the British press. But we'll come back to that. But they're so strong. Do you actually call yourself an anti-Zionist? First of all, it, it is a very painful process to release yourself from Zionism in Israel, because it's not another ideology among many ideologies. It's almost like living a religion. It's almost like being an anti-communist in communist Russia. Because as you know, because you've been here so many times, Zionism is a dominant, not only dominant ideology in Israel, it's all, not almost, it is the only legitimate ideology in Israel. Anything which put questions about Zionism is not legitimate in Israeli discourse. And I was part of it. So for me, even to, to define myself verbally as not Zionist or even anti-Zionist, is still a very, I must admit, a quite a very painful process. Because by this I say, I am behind the fence. I'm not with you Israelis. Are you also saying, do you interpret that as saying, if you say you're anti-Zionist and you're an Israeli, that you actually are against the creation of the uh, state of Israel? Does that basically no. what it means? No, because the creation of Israel, I mean, I wish it would have happened in a different way. I wish so much it would happen in a different way. I wish we could then establish a binational state. And maybe history would look totally different today. But to say to my father, who came from Europe and was half a year in a boat in the Mediterranean, without any possibilities to get to Palestine. He was not a Zionist, but he left his parents and everyone else wherever he left and came here. He had no other place to go. To tell him go away or to tell him you did wrong when you came here is for me impossible. What I can tell my father and his generation, you should have come here, but you should have come here in a different way. You should have come here knowing that this land belongs to another people. And you have no other choice but to join them. But it's not a land without people and you are not a people without land who landed in a land without people. There is a people here who lives for centuries and have full rights about this place. Yeah. This was the major mistake. So tell us a bit, um, I'm fascinated to hear what it's like being you, being Gideon Levy, being a, such a fierce critic of uh, Israel's policies towards the Palestinians. For you personally, 
I mean, do you get heavily, I mean, we know what, I know what it's like for me being critical from here, but obviously an entirely different uh, set of circumstances. Do you get trolled? I've read that you have a bodyguard. What's your personal life like? How do people treat you? I will answer you, but I will be very happy also to ask you later on, how is it today being an Israel critic in Europe? Because yeah. this is becoming more yeah, okay. and more complicated and we have to talk about it. It is on my list, don't worry. Great. <laughs> so in any case, look, I am uh, in many ways privileged. I'm Jewish. I'm Ashkenazi from European origin. I work for Haaretz, which is a very respectable platform in Israel. And somehow I gained some privileges that, for example, a Palestinian could never gain in Israel, even not an Israeli citizen, an Israeli-Palestinian citizen. The fact that I'm working for Haaretz gives me so many advantages. First of all, the freedom, the total freedom, which I'm not sure I could have in any other platform, but not only freedom, also support. It's not only freedom. It's really support. Not that everyone agrees with me in Haaretz, but having this platform puts me in a different place than any dissident in, I don't know what, in Russia or in uh, Myanmar. I am still somehow part of the establishment. I had a uh, dinner with Netanyahu a few weeks ago. Yeah, we can. Yeah, I read about whatever, it. Whatever you think about Netanyahu, but I'm not, I, I somehow succeeded to stay within the camp even though I am, and, and this, by the way, talks in favor of Israel, because there is still some kind of spirit of, I don't know how to call it, but the fact that I am totally free shouldn't be taken for granted. And, and, yet, for granted. and yet your government has recently uh, banned or called labeled as terrorists, the six, what I have always known as extraordinarily mainstream accepted human rights organizations, including people like Al-Haq and, and Betselem and so on. I mean, this has caused huge shock here, I think. Um, it seemed to be unbelievable. I was gonna ask you, first of all, do you, what did that take you aback, number one? And don't you think, you know, the next thing we're gonna be reading is Gideon Levy has been silenced. No, because there is still in Israel a very clear line between what you do to Palestinians and what you do to Jewish Israelis. I don't say it with pride on the contrary, with a lot of shame. But the fact is that as long as you are Jewish, I don't say it will last forever like this, but I don't see in the coming future that anyone can silence me. What happened with those uh, six organizations should tell us a very important lesson about Israeli politics, because we are facing now a government of change. We got rid of this terrible Satan called Benjamin Netanyahu. We have now the most leftist Zionist in, in power. And look what they are doing, exactly the same which should lead everyone to the conclusion that when it comes to the occupation and above all to the Jewish supremacy 
in Israel, there is no difference between left and right in Israel. Don't have any expectations from the Zionist left. When it comes to the real core issues, he's as right-wing as Netanyahu and even more so. Well, I mean, it's it's uh, one of my strongest memories from my time in, uh, as a Jerusalem correspondent, when I was there during Oslo, was of course Rabin uh, shaking hands with Arafat. And the next day I went out with a colleague to Male Adumim and the bulldozers were continuing as busily as ever. Uh, although I just like to ask you a question as that's come up. Do you feel that uh, Rabin before, by the time he got to, you know, the, the time of his assassination, do you think he was different and that he might have led uh, Israel and the Palestinians finally down some kind of route to peace? Or do you think that was also a pipe dream? I thought so at the time. And I thought that Oslo is a great hope. And when I look backwards, and only when I look backwards, I think that Oslo was a trip and the Palestinians fall into this trap. You see, take even Rabin, who, who, who had some goodwill. When he shook the hands of the hand of Arafat, everyone was talking about how irritated he was to shake the hands of Arafat. He looked pretty cross, actually, I remember. He looked, and it was for him really painful physically. Now, I want to ask you, Sarah, Whose hands carry more blood, you think? Rabin's hands or Afat's hands? Who is responsible for more bloodshed throughout 48 and 67 and 73 and so forth and so And above all, in the occupation, in the first intifada. So the fact that Rabin was still a representative of the old school of Israelis who thinks that the Arabs fight you can't trust them and they were all born to kill and they want only to kick us to the ocean and they are not equal human beings like us Israelis and they have different morals, moral, moral judgment and they don't love their children and all those things. He was part of this school because if he was irritated or irritated of shaking Arafat's hands, it says the whole story. Arafat was not irritated. Arafat should have been irritated to shake the hands of someone who transferred thousands of people in 48 from their homes and never let them back. Yes, yes. Well, uh, Rabin was responsible for Lida and Ramla, wasn't he? I, I remember. Oh, exactly, including a massacre. But, uh, right. Well, that's really, really interesting. I've, just going back to, to your own um, writing, though, Gideon, uh, for a minute. Uh, you talk, you know, you, you describe how you have a pretty free hand to do what you do because you are Jewish and, and Israeli, etc. Um, but nevertheless, I think it would be helpful if you explain the restrictions that do uh, are placed upon you. For example, uh, you can't go to the, as far as I know, you can't go to anywhere in the West Bank. I may be slightly wrong about that, but I've seen all the signs as I go around saying it's dangerous, Israeli, Israeli uh, citizens, you know, enter illegally. And of course, you absolutely cannot go unless you somehow smuggle yourself in to Gaza. Um, this means that you can't surely really um, cover the story as you would like to. Um, I want to ask you, first of all, how you get around that. But number two, 
why is it that that the Israeli journalistic community and newspapers like Haaretz have not challenged this restriction again and again? Because surely that ban is like being told in any other conflict situation, you, we're not going to have war correspondence. So let's make some order. In Gaza, there's no Israeli journalist and no Israeli at all who could smuggle or get in legally in the last 15 years, ever since Hamas took, uh, got into power. For me, it's an enormous loss as a journalist because the real stories are there and the real suffering is there and I'm not there. And if I could choose one place in the world in which I would like to visit one more time, it will be Gaza without any hesitation. When it, by the way, foreign journalists are easily, uh, uh, can easily go to Gaza and this must be mentioned. I mean, if you come with, with uh, some kind of press card, Israel will let you into Gaza. Actually, I have to correct you slightly on that. It's actually not easy. It's getting more and more difficult for multiple reasons. I was actually banned two years ago and told I couldn't go because I'm actually not a journalist, even though I've been a journalist all my life. I appealed against the ban and actually I won it. It is actually becoming more and more difficult for British journalists, not least because you have to go through several hoops through the government press office, your government press office, uh, and, and most newspapers will not sponsor journalists to go there any longer because they've been made to believe it's so terrible you have to do a um, you know a hostile environment training course before you go in it's expensive for them it's a high risk they think you're going to be you know taken hostage the minute you step foot there so actually it's really not easy for British journalists to go there. I think that if a British journalist comes and he's on the payroll of a, of a newspaper sure, or that makes it easier yeah, then not easier then they cannot stop you if you come with a letter from the independent that you're working regularly for the independent, you will get into Gaza without too many problems. By this, I don't, sorry. It's not as easy as it was, but anyway. Absolutely, but it's still possible. Yeah. While for us Israelis, it's totally impossible. Yeah. Yeah, sure. On the other hand, about the West Bank, you are right that there are those big signs that warn any Israeli not to get into area A, the cities. But I can tell you for 32 years now, I'm going every week to the West Bank and I was never stopped. And if I was stopped, I always found uh, ways to get into the West Bank. I have no problem today to get into the West Bank. Yes, I violated the Israeli law, but nobody, nobody um, talks about it. And I'm every week in the West Bank very easily, very easily. This must be said. It's not enough for me because Gaza is the challenge and Gaza is a place where Israeli journalists should be. But in the West Bank, I'm still very free to move. Yes, from time to time, I lie in the checkpoints. I tell them I'm going to a settlement. It shouldn't be like this, absolutely. But I don't remember one time, even not in the worst times in the Intifada, in which I couldn't make my way to a story in the West Bank. Has, has anyone in the Israeli press uh, world challenged legally the, uh, your own government's right to keep you out of Gaza completely? So first of all, most of the Israeli journalists are not interested to go to Gaza. And most of the Israeli journalists have no interest to know what's going on in Gaza. 
it's enough for them what the army spokesperson is dictating them. This is part of the problem that Israeli media is free, but totally taken uh, hostage by the readership and the rating and the viewers who don't want to hear about all those things. And therefore, there is no interest for anyone to, to do more than getting the briefings from the army spokesperson. My newspaper tried to challenge it, including an appeal to the Supreme Court. We didn't succeed until now. They have the claim that if I will be uh, uh, taking hostage, they are kidnapped, then the state will have to take some measures and I'm ready to tell my state that I release it from any kind of, of, of responsibility for my fate. I go to the West Bank, it might happen also in the West Bank. I don't want any favors from my state, but it doesn't work with Gaza. And uh, I must tell you that except of me and my photographer, I don't think many people regret it. Um, can I just uh, switch now, I mean, uh, to asking you a bit about, about the British and European support for the kind of um, arguments you're putting. I mean, presumably, I've often thought this, when we have our sort of debate here that we've recently become hugely embroiled in over anti-Semitism and so on, um, that people like yourself, I assume, would be hugely grateful for much more criticism of Israel along the lines that you, uh, you set it out, not less. Um, and yet we have found, uh, particularly if you look at what's been going on in, and first of all, in Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party and, and, and Keir Starmer today, that they have become uh, so cowed by the fear of uh, anti-Zionism being conflated with anti-Semitism that Corbyn has, has been put in his box and Starmer hardly dare mention the word Palestine. And journalism has also been undoubtedly, even in the last, I would say, two to three years, I've offered at least two pieces to The Guardian, which they said no to because what I was, it was too sensitive because it, it sort of broached some of these issues. Um, how does that look to you? And would it not help you more rather than less if, 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 if people spoke out loudly here? I think this is maybe the most important subject that we can discuss today. Because what happened is really unheard of and unacceptable. In the last three, four, five years, Israel changed strategy and started to label any criticism about Israel as anti-Semitism. What is unbelievable is how Europe, entire Europe, got totally paralyzed by it. It's unbelievable. In Sweden, you cannot publish an article, a critical article about Israel today because you'll be labeled as anti-Semitic. And same in your country and same everywhere. I'm not speaking only about Germany, which goes without saying, you know, I, a few years ago, I was invited to a small meeting of a solidarity, totally innocent solidarity group with the Palestinians in Berlin. They couldn't find a venue. We had to travel 200 kilometers to a Copt monastery where the Egyptian old monk was ready to host us for a weekend. Because in Berlin, nobody will, will, will give you a venue to, to speak about the occupation or to pay some solidarity with the Palestinians. 
So this is really more your issue than our issue. Because I think we are dealing now with freedom of speech in Europe. And freedom of speech in Europe is damaged seriously but those by, by those uh, accusations. Because there is anti-Semitism. Yeah, Sorry. I mean, yeah, obviously yeah, the, the taint of, of, of anti-Semitism is, seems to be nowadays, and in the, you know, often rightly so, I'm not contesting it. I mean, I, I, my last book was about a Nazi concentration camp, but it seems to be now um, so deadly to editors, to politicians, to anybody that nobody dare set out the case uh, for separating anti-Semitism from anti-Zionism. Um, and I want to ask you why you think we have less courage to do that than we did in the 50s and 60s when we were closer to World War II, for example. I mean, if you look back through the, all the debate about um, Zionism that's gone on over the years, people were much more open and much more frank and much more ready to distinguish publicly and in debates in the commons and in the press between, between the two. Why is it now that we are so, so terrified apparently by being slurred as anti-Semitic? I think first of all, it is because of the success of the Israeli strategy. They do it systematically, deliberately. They working through the Jewish communities, through the embassies. You know, you publish a letter to the editor and immediately the editor will get a phone call from the embassy, from the Jewish community, how dare you, and so forth and so forth. And we know they are quite powerful and influential, even in places where there is no reason for guilt feelings towards uh, 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 39, 45, and also no big meaningful Jewish community. And still you see they are paralyzed and I'm really referring to a place like Sweden, but Europe is carrying as a whole some kind of justified guilt feelings for what happened in World War II in the Holocaust and Israel is manipulating those emotions. Here you have to add one more thing, which is new, and this is the Islamophobia. Don't forget that what, 20 years ago, there were not so many Muslims in Europe. And Europe doesn't like those Muslims, to say the least. And Israel is manipulating this as well. So by the end of the day, our hope, my hope, the few Israelis who had this hope, not only because you were talking about criticism of Israel. No, we were not expecting criticism of Israel. We were expecting taking measures because criticism Israel got enough and Israel learned to live with it and ignore it. Sure. What so we were expecting is taking measures yes. similar to those which were taken towards South Africa. Yes. And this so not only never happened, I don't see a chance that it will ever happen. Okay. So and this was our last hope, because from Israel, nothing will change. Curiously, Inside Israel, yes. there will be no change. I actually had a, a long briefing with a foreign office uh, official before I came out uh, for my first trip to Gaza for many years in about two after the 2014 war. 
And they were actually talking at that time about possibly, and I know it's small beer, but it's the beginning sanctions, you know, against some of the settlements. Even to say that now is, is a joke. I mean, they're not, that, but instead they're banning Hamas, that they've turned Hamas into a, a, an organization which even its political wing is now um, uh, to be deemed terrorist. Anybody like me or, or, or whoever who is, has any sort of dealings with them at all will be criminalized. I mean, what do you make of that? And, and what's the reaction, if any, what reaction has there been in Israel? Look, this is part of this unbelievable policy. The world is talking to Taliban. The world is talking, obviously, to Iran. The world is talking because that's the way to solve problems. And Hamas, is, I mean, the EU totally bans Hamas. Why? I mean, Israel did anything possible that Hamas will get stronger and will run Gaza. And Hamas is running Gaza today. We can like Hamas, we can dislike Hamas. Gaza is Hamas and Hamas is Gaza. What do you mean you don't talk with them? I mean, you talk to Israel, so you talk to Hamas. I don't want to make a moral comparison between Hamas and Israel or between the Palestinians and Israelis, but it's a very complicated comparison. And when it comes to talk about terror, let's not get into this alley in which we have to decide who is a bigger terrorist, the state of Israel or those organizations who would love to fly an F-15 and push a button and throw bombs over civil, civilian uh, neighborhoods in Gaza. Unbelievable phenomena, which I'm speechless. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say about this world who doesn't talk to Hamas and talks to Taliban and talks to Israel. I, I really Nobody don't know knows what to make of it. It's um, it's extraordinary, but I mean we'll have to see whether it how, well. Let's see uh, how how long it sticks. Um, I wanted to just uh, take you back in time a little bit as well. Um, uh, as you know, there's this extraordinary attempt to control the narrative on the part of, of, of Israel is nothing new. It's gone on since the year dot. Um, and, and of course, controlling the narrative about what happened in 1948 has always been absolutely central to, uh, to what, what, what story is told of history there. Um, I'm wondering, a lot of what I'm doing at the moment is, is around 1948. And I feel like as I write about events in 1948 and things come up on my screen, you know, it's all a continuum, as we know, the Nakba never stopped. It's just a continuous, nor did the attempt to control the narrative of what happened then change really much from how it is today. But I wondered how concerned you are by, and how concerned actually you think the Israeli government is today by the fact that the story of 1948 is, coming out of the woodwork more and more, you know, there are more exposures. There is something again that the Israeli press and organizations are doing. Um, and they are trying to, as far as I understand it, the Israeli authorities are trying to um, take, I mean, I've been told this by, by Benny Morris himself, you know, the, the, uh, the um, well-known historian, 
that things he was able to access in the late 80s about what happened in 1948 are now being taken out of the archives and reclassified. What do you make of that? And how worried do you think that the uh, Israeli government really is about the fact that, that some of the, the, the crimes that were committed there, the criminal way in which you, I think you agree, uh, the state of Israel came into being is now being covered up? My, my newspaper, Haaretz, is uh, publishing tomorrow, Friday, a big uh, investigation about what happened in Dir Yassin. I didn't read it yet. Dir Yassin was the most famous uh, massacre, claiming that it was not uh, the only massacre. And that's very important. But I must disappoint you, Sarah. I think that the problem is the indifference. The problem is that even if those stories will come out, even if the world and Israel will know everything about 48, today the sensitivity to all those stories and issues is much, much lower than 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And therefore, I don't think that the government cares so much. For many years, I felt how most of the Israelis feel that something is burning under their legs, under their feet, because almost every Israeli who was here in those years knows the truth and knows that something went wrong. Something went wrong in this country, in the establishment of this country. And therefore, they were so aggressive against any kind of, of attempt to, to to say the truth, to tell the truth. Therefore, they, they, they were so aggressive in covering up physically all the ruins of the Palestinian villages. No signs, nothing. They were not here. They were never here. Nothing stays except of some, some sabra, some, some cactuses, which remind us, and some very few ruins, which remind us that there was a people living there. Now it's a new era, because you know, now indifference is the main sentiment. You say that, and obviously you know better than I do. You live in the country. Um, I travel around there a little bit. But I, I wonder whether that's entirely true. I'll give you a small example. I got, I, for some reason or other, I was in uh, Rehovot, uh, which no, people won't know, it's a town south of Tel Aviv, not so long ago. And I had to get a taxi from Rehovot to Gaza, to Eretz checkpoint, which is the main checkpoint you go into um, Gaza from crossing from Israel. And, you know, I've, I've got taxis to Eretz checkpoint from Jerusalem and all over the place. Uh, but this was from Rehovot. Uh, and I'd actually been looking at destroyed Palestinian villages around Rehovot at the time. And, and it was, he was a very friendly guy, we know, with the reflective sunglasses. And he said, oh, yes, I'll put on ways and we'll go to Gaza. So off we went and we had the ways, but ways just broke down about literally, I don't know, 500 yards from the checkpoint. And he was terrified and he stood up and he said, where is Gaza? Where is Gaza? And what's happened to my, and I said, don't worry, Dan, it's fine. It's just, just around there. And I sort of showed him how to get there. Then we got there and he was astonished. He said, is this Gaza? And then he saw some people coming out because you know, a few old people and small numbers of people are allowed out to kind of visit relatives. And he, he said, is that what they look like in Gaza? And I said, well, some of them look like that then. And then he started telling me about how he'd never been told the truth. And was it really like that? And were there really villages like Majdal that existed? And he asked me to 
have him pick him up when I came out because he wanted to know more. Anyway, I tell that only to say there are so many wonderful, decent people there who, if they understood and their education was right, I'm sure they'd care. They're not all people who are not human, Israelis, uh, you know, any less so than Palestinians. Uh, all, all I do is exactly... Or am, I, am I an old sentimental, like Abraham Berg told me I was? Now, first of all, it's important to be also sentimental because it is also a sentimental issue we are dealing with. It's not only politics and strategy. Finally, it's the fate of millions of people who are suffering like none of us can even imagine itself. For sure in Gaza, but same for the West Bank. So being sentimental is important. Don't apologize for being sentimental. I just think that Israeli society, and same for Europe in many ways, went through a process in the recent years in which this does, is not on the table anymore. Europe has different issues now to deal with, and I feel how Europe is losing interest. And Israelis, who were very nervous before and very ignorant, but very nervous not to know too much. Now there's a new state which is much more dangerous because, you know, so what? So tell them that there were massacres in 48. You think it will, I'll give you one example, sir. In the late eighties, I wrote about the first pregnant woman who gave birth in the checkpoint. She tried three checkpoints to get to a hospital. They wouldn't let her in and she lost her baby. He died, but she walked two and a half kilometers in a rainy cold night and she lost the baby. When I first published it, there was really, I don't want to say a big scandal, but it got to the cabinet meeting. Some officers were brought to justice. It was an issue. Today, if I write the same story, nobody would care. I don't want to say nobody because there are still Israelis who is conscious, but very few would care anymore. And same for the big issues. The word somehow trained itself to live with the fact that there are daily crimes in this part of the world. Surely, except that. And in a way, Gaza comes back to Gaza as I know this applies to all the refugee camps in the West Bank and everywhere else. But there's something about Gaza. I mean, as you know, your own newspaper wrote only a couple of days ago how they finally completed this new huge wall and fence around Gaza, which goes so deep into the ground. I saw them building it when I was last there uh, to stop the tunnelers, behind which live 2.2 million people, I think it is now. Now, those people are not going to go away. They're going to stay put. Um, some of them may go away, but the number's not going to diminish. They're talking about building an island, as you know, off the sea to kind of put them in or something like that. I mean, in view of the fact that the, the human result of this stalemate is, is not going away, indeed, it's going to, you know, grow, um, as is the challenge to the world to support them and so on. I want to know whether you see any, where, where you see the future um, here, Gideon, because I interviewed um, a wonderful man called Yaakov Sharet, who I think gave an interview to uh, Haaretz recently, 
who I just tell everyone else is the 92 year old son of Moshe Sharet, uh, then Shertok, I think, uh, second prime minister of Israel. But Yaakov is a very, very disillusioned 92 year old. He does say, he doesn't say he's an anti Zionist, he says he's not a Zionist. He basically envisages little short of catastrophe, of huge violence. Um, in five, 20, 30 years, it'll only end in some huge conflagration. Do you agree with him or do you see some, some kind of peaceful route without bloodshed whereby this is resolved? Unfortunately, uh, Yaakov Sharet is more optimistic than me because he foresees violence. And I foresee continuing with the same thing for maybe decades. For many years, I was totally convinced that this will explode one day. Because history taught us that finally, peoples who are fighting for their freedom, finally they make it. But not in all cases. Look at the Native Americans in the United States. I'm very afraid that the Palestinians might expect a very similar fate or a very similar future in which, you know, they will be put in those bentustans like they are today. The world wouldn't care too much. Israel is strong enough to, to continue with this. And for really my, my hope for many years that one day the world will interfere. Now I don't see who is going to interfere exactly. And no who one state solution. No, I mean, we've given, we're taking it as a given, there's no two state solution, but for you also no, no one state solution either. There is a one state, but it's not a democracy. And the question is, will the world react like he did react to the first apartheid state or not? Because today, two things are almost not questioned anymore. First of all, the two-state solution is dead. I mean, those who claim that there is still a chance do it because it's very hard for them to admit the truth. But deep in their heart, including European leaders, they know that there is no chance after 52 years, really. Give us a break. And secondly, the, 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 this illusion that an apartheid say is unacceptable. No, it is acceptable for many years. You know, I thought now, I, I'll be very extreme now and, and, and provocative, but I really think so. I saw this crown prince, the Saudi crown prince. He's now banned and, and, and Macron went to see him and this was a big revolution because he murdered or is responsible for murdering one journalist. How many people, the Israeli politicians are responsible for their lives, for their murders, for their assassinations? And why are they so legitimate? There's no one more legitimate today. I mean, if an Israeli politician wants to travel anywhere, he will be most welcome everywhere, in Europe, in the United States, in Africa, in Asia, everywhere. Those people are not brought to, to, to any kind of uh, accountability for what they are doing. It's a very, very, very bleak, uh, bleak, um, prediction and, 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 and extraordinary and I'm very glad to hear you make it because it's been in the back of my mind but I've never articulated it like the one you did in other words we'll just have more of the same. Um, 
just last thing, and I know Diana will want to, to ask questions, but quickly, as this is the Balfour project, um, one thing that has really struck me traveling around in Gaza and talking to obviously particularly the old people, because I'm trying to get the last survivors of 1948, but also younger people, um, and the Israelis always say they hate us, they, the Arabs, they hate us. Actually, I don't think that's really true. The people they hate most, well, they don't hate ordinary British people. They're very always lovely to me and people who visit. But the thing that angers them most is what the British did. They are more angry with the British than with the Jews. And the Balfour Declaration obviously is the Balfour Promise, as they rather sweetly call it. The Balfour Promise is what they uh, revile in a way more than anything else. Um, do you think that, that, that it's time that the British, and would it be a good idea, I admit it's not going to happen in the near future, but uh, if, we, uh, if we came to terms with that somehow, like we're coming to terms with other kind of colonial legacies that we now admit were, you know, were not, uh, were not really how we want to remember ourselves? Look, I was brought up in Israel in which they taught us that the Brits were anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic, and anti-Zionists. And they did anything possible to prevent the establishment of the State of Israel. Only now, years later, I realized that if there was a main role for the Brits, it was to support the Zionistic project, with some, uh, some uh, exceptions. I mean, the fact that, again, coming back to the beginning of our conversations, coming back to my personal father, he in 39 couldn't get to Palestine and the Brits sent him to Beirut to a, to a, to a detention center for two months, uh, which was also problematic because those were refugees who were running for their life from burning Europe or from, Europe, which started to burn them. In any case, I think that looking at the past, Balfour, Nakba, for many years, I thought this is not productive. Let's look for the future and forget about the past. But the, few, the past, and you mentioned it before, the past never stopped. 48 never stopped. Balfour declaration, which gave some privileges to the Jews over the Palestinians. Let's face it, read the text. Huge privileges, yeah. Huge privileges. While they were the natives and they were the newcomers with all the respect to the heritage and to the Bible and to everything. Finally, we were the newcomers and they were the natives. Yeah. The Jews could come to Palestine for centuries and they didn't do so. So the British, the British, no Jew came here. But the British are not going to ever, not in the current climate, even with the knocking down of statues, even with all the talk about the crimes of slavery, we're never going to acknowledge our role in the colonization of Palestine. Yeah, yeah but you know, every, every, everyone is dealing with his own guilt. Yeah. And I think that our guilt, we, the Jewish Israelis, carry so much more guilt toward the Palestinians that, than you carry. So I can give you a discount. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, we'll let we'll let Boris Johnson off the hook then, and not ask him to exactly. apologize. He's got. But what do you get instead? I mean, they killed uh, uh, Corbyn, so yeah, who is left? 
Imagine yourself that Corbyn would have become Prime Minister of the UK. I think it could have become a game changer in Europe because it could lead some others. The trouble is that's what your government thought as well. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay, well, I better stop there. We could talk forever, but Diana, I'm sure you've got so. lots of questions to, uh, for people to ask Gideon. Anyway, thank you so much. That was really, really interesting. Yes. Thank you so much for your kind and interesting questions, Sarah. Thank you so much. That was so interesting. Um, yes, we do have lots of questions. I'm going to get through them as um, um, as many as we can, hopefully. One of them was what you thought about uh, Jeremy Corbyn, that you, you kind of answered that, so that's great. Um, before I start with the questions, I just want to say that we are keeping our monthly webinar series free because we want to to have as many people as possible access it. We want to put it on the website so people can watch it after the fact. If they can't make it live, if they can make it live and they want to share it as widely as possible, please do have a look on our website. We've got not only all of our past recordings of our past webinars, but also a bunch of other resources um, that can be used in schools and educational settings as well. Um, we do ask that if you can to give a donation, I'm going to pop, pop the link in and if you um, into the chat box and if you can consider regular donations that really helps us with our planning for the future and um, being able to predict whether we can carry on with these webinar series um, episodes for as long as possible. So uh, that was my little appeal. And um, so now I will ask you some of the questions. I'm going to start with uh, Sir Vincent Fien, who's the chair of the Balfour Project and who's going to be, um, those of you on our mailing list would have received an email about his, um, he's going to be interviewing Hanan Ashrawi later on tonight. So do check him out for that. Um, but he's left us a question. Um, Gideon, all your professional life, you've been telling it like it is. You deserve respect. What is the best thing for British civil society to say or do that will resonate with Israeli civil society and influence thinking towards peace with justice? Look, if anyone expects that the Israelis will wake up one shining morning and say, oh, the occupation is not so nice, let's put an end to it. It didn't happen for over 50 years and it's not going to happen in the coming 500 years. The only way to make a change is to make the Israelis being punished and being accountable for these ongoing crimes. And the only way will be when Israelis will have to pay, and I'm not speaking about money, but will have to pay for the crimes. And then Israelis will ask themselves, is it worth it? Are we ready to pay for those stupid settlements that we have never gone there and have no interest in what's going on there? Is it really logical that we will pay now a price for it, a political price, a diplomatic price, even a price in our identity? But that's exactly the role of the civil societies because governments are not going to do it. Only civil societies are going to do it to make Israelis accountable for, those, for what they're doing. Thanks for that. I've got a question from Martin Linton. Can Israeli politicians believe their luck that they have such weak and unprincipled politicians as Boris Johnson and Joe Biden in charge of the West? 
and whom do we have in Israel? I mean, this is an era of, of, of weak politicians. And it's not really, I mean, they, and we had also stronger politicians and they, when it comes to Palestine, Israel, they did nothing. So it's not now about looking for this hero who will make the difference. I mean, we had really Barack Obama, really who else had this understanding of the Palestinian problem? There was never an American president who understood so well the, the, the just, the injustice for the Palestinians. And what did he do? Nothing, but really nothing. So we shouldn't look for, for a Messiah who will come and save us. It must come from the civil societies. Like it came, by the way, with South Africa. Always put in your mind, how did the apartheid system in South Africa fall? Finally, it was about the international sanctions and embargoes and boycotts, which brought an end to it. Thanks for that. I've got a question now from Ronald Mendel. Um, question for Gideon. What do you think about the argument among some Israeli, British, and American Jews that Judaism needs to be reclaimed from Zionism for the actions of the Israeli government against Palestinians is incompatible with the moral and ethical values of Judaism? I don't know what are the moral values of Judaism. I know what are universal morals. I don't accept this notion that there are Jewish values and some other values. No, there are moral values and the, the, the global values, universal values. And those moral values are very clear. You don't occupy, you don't tyrannize, you give equal rights. And above all, all human beings are equal. And this, you don't need to be a Jewish or a non-Jewish to believe in it. By the end of the day, Zionism is an ideology. You can stick to it, you cannot stick to it, but you, it, it's impossible to believe that if you, if you resist against Zionism, immediately it criminalizes you. And that's the fact today. If you say one word about Zionism, you are criminalized as an anti-Semite. This is unacceptable. And this, the, the, the civil societies in Europe should say their word. No, we don't accept it. We have the full right to criticize Israel, to be anti-Zionist, and we are not anti-Semites. And now we've got a question on the media, which um, I think both of you could uh, chip in on, um, from Tim Llewellyn, who is um, a member of the Balfour Project and a former journalist. Uh, why are the British media, including the BBC, so dishonest about reporting Israel's oppression of the Palestinians? For instance, Israel's periodic invasions of Gaza are always accepted by the UK media as responses to Palestinian violence, which they know, know not to be the case. And a follow-up question from Heather Fermaini, um, who says she would like to follow up from Tim's question. How does one approach the BBC to interrogate the poverty of the quality of broadcasting on Palestine? What can we do? That's for Sarah. Well, 
there used to be wonderful uh, correspondents um, who used to cover this subject for the BBC. And of course, there are some that, that there still are, but we don't hear from them very often on this subject. Um, I, I frankly have to turn the radio off when the BBC covers, uh, covers uh, Gaza particularly, or, or the West Bank, um, particularly the main news programmes. Um, there seems to be this, this kind of, they, they're tied into two things, it seems to me. One is this kind of balance thing, which, 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 which pr projects across all, um, all coverage of all subjects, but uh, every single time you've got to balance it by equal time and equal um, you know, force. You've got to give the, 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 the Israeli point of view and the Palestinian point of view, that's one thing. But they don't seek out. I mean, I don't know how many times Gideon has been asked to uh, to speak on the BBC. How, how often do they call you up, Gideon? Almost never. I mean, really, I can't recall when was the last time. It's well, okay. years. There you are. Years I mean, how absurd. Uh, the BBC recently went into Gaza to do. I mean, I think it was about two years ago now to do a, a, a some kind of story about Hamas. They in, interviewed uh, Mahmoud Sahar, who was one of the kind of the most inarticulate the most um, radical of the Hamas leadership. And this was the point of view we got from, uh, from Gaza. It told people absolutely nothing about the situation of the two million people in Gaza. They, have, they seem to not be able to get um, articulate voices on from the Palestinian side, and they seem not to uh, want to try. Now, we know perfectly well that the BBC has been very badly cowed and got at and sat upon by the uh, pro-Israel lobby in this country over the years. Um, many notorious cases going back to Jeremy Bowen, and there was an entire inquiry about his coverage, uh, which was said to be anti-Israel. And now people are so, I think, I get, I'm afraid, I just get the impression with a few notable exceptions that people are terrified of stepping across the line, of losing their jobs, of being demoted, and the management, as Gideon's already said earlier, you know, are terrified of getting the calls from the Israeli embassy and indeed from the British government, from Priti Patel at the moment. So they're, they're terrified. But one thing, only thing I'd add on that is that I, I don't think it's just that there's this terror. I'm actually not sure how many people really know the real story themselves inside the BBC. I think the experience of people like Tim, Tim Llewellyn, who's asked the question himself, is dissipating. And I don't think, I get the impression that and, and of, of course, there are very many exceptions to this, but the, the depth of knowledge and understanding of the kind of uh, issues that Gideon has been explaining is going. And I think, again, they take what the Israeli government spokesman says. And you want you know what's the biggest joke? That in Israel, BBC is perceived as an anti-Semite network. Of course, because that uh, the the lobbying is working brilliantly. It's it's True. just giving such an easy ride. And the BBC can only defend itself and apologize all day long because he's accused as an anti-Semite. That's the manipulation, and that's exactly the point where civil societies shouldn't say we 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 accept it. Quite. So following on from your comments, uh, Sarah, where you, you asked Gideon how often he's asked to speak at the BBC, we've got a question from Pamela Manning who asks if, uh, Gideon, are you often asked to speak or take part in debates at Israeli universities? Um, not at all, but this will be, I mean, things change in this country. And it's not only about me, it's really about 
losing interest in the entire issue of occupation. I would even broaden it and say it's even losing interest in anything which is collective. Israel is becoming a society, a very individualistic society, very ignorant, really concentrated in, 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 in stupid uh, uh, re re uh, uh, programs, reality programs on TV, all kinds of fake scandals who are never important. And really, most Israelis don't deal anymore with any kind of serious issues. Israel changed. Well, um, we've got a comment that sums it up from Afif Abu Rish. Um, very de depressing picture from Gideon Levy. Um, what does he suggest the Palestinian people do? Here I have only one suggestion, not that I have a magic for them, but I think the Palestinians should really leave all the slogans about the Palestinian state, about settlements, about borders, about all those things. Concentrate in one thing, struggle over equal rights. One person, one vote. This should be the only discourse. Go for it without any hesitation. Challenge Israel, make Israel say there will never be equal rights. And then maybe the world will understand that we are dealing with an apartheid state. Because as long as we are continuing to dream this impossible dream about two-state solution, which is a wonderful solution, but it's far away from reality, only struggle over equal rights can make a change. Struggle over equal rights. That's my only suggestion to you. Thanks for that. Um, core values of the Balfour Project is equal rights. Um, in Israel and Palestine. I've got a question from Hilary Wise. Um, could Gideon comment on the possible outcomes of the ICC case against Israel? Look, we are trying to find all kinds of sources of hope and ICC is another source of hope because we are so poor in, in hope now. But by the end of the day, I can almost be sure that the Zionist machinery, together with the United States, with the support of the EU, will crash also ICC. We see already signs of it. I mean, it is a hope, sure it is a hope, but to think that the ICC will change the reality, unfortunately, I think it's by far not realistic because we know where the United States stands, we know where the EU stands, we know how powerful they are when it comes to those international institutions. So let's not have any illusions about it. Thanks, Gideon. I've got a final question for the both of you. Um, this is from Gillian Mosley. We showed her film recently, The Tinderbox, which was so illuminating. Um, she asks, 
is the next generation of Westerners likely to be as indifferent as their forebears? I am noticing a lot of headlines about young Jews questioning their parents' narrative and indeed attention being given to this issue by movements like the Black, Black Lives Matter. Do these give us rays of hope in your opinion? Sarah is the hopeful person between us, so let Sarah answer. Sorry. But I do think, in fact, I was on my list of questions to ask you, Gideon, um, whether, whether particularly in America, whether you sense that the kind of, um, uh, I sense, but I don't live there nowadays, and so I can't be sure, that there is a genuine shift uh, in, amongst young people, and, and as the questioner says, due to Black Lives Matter and this awareness of colonialism and all the rest of it, that there is the beginning of a shift and it's going to be very difficult for Palestine to be left out of that change of that sense that uh, black lives do indeed matter. And also in this country, um, I know that the, the fact that these, the, the, the pro-Israel lobby is taking the fight very, very much to the universities here, as, as you know, as elsewhere. But I've had two daughters through university recently and, and um, not that they're influenced by their mother in any way, but um, they, they certainly talk a lot about how much this is talked about amongst both Jewish and non-Jewish friends and Palestinian friends. And I feel that the, 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 I do think we ought to acknowledge that the next hope, our generation has probably had it, you know, the best we can do is these write things down on paper. Um, but the next generation, I think that's where the hope lies, but who can say, but that's the only hope I see. One thing I'd just like to ask you, because you, you've mentioned apartheid in South Africa so often, do you actually support the BDS campaign or do you think that's not the way forward? With no hesitations. I mean, that's the only game in town right now. Um, I mean, condemnations, talkings, I mean, we had them enough. The only way to make a change is through actions and the only only political actor who can do it are the civil societies because governments will never do it or at least not as long as they don't have a lot of pressure coming from civil societies but as i understand we are concluding and i want to leave some room for hope even if it's very hard for me so i would say only one thing let's remember that many things in history are happening in the most unexpected way. Right. Exactly. If we would gather here in the late 80s and I would have told you that South Africa is going to fall, the Berlin Wall is going to fall and Soviet Russia is going to fall, you would have thought that I'm out of my mind. But finally it happened in the most unexpected way, in the most unexpected time. So we have to I mean, we can't be totally hopeless, and I am almost hopeless because I see what's happening in the world. I see what's happening in Israel. I see what's happening with the Palestinians. But by the end of the day, there is a hope that things will turn against all odds and justice will win finally. I, I, I can't deny this chance. I mean, I want to believe in it, and I do believe in it, something will happen. It cannot go on like this. Well, thank you um, 
for that kind of hopeful note that we can end on. Um, that was absolutely fascinating. I could have listened to you both talking to each other for many more hours. Um, we've actually gone a bit over time, but I'm sure everyone will forgive us. Um, again, I would like to make an appeal. If you have enjoyed this webinar, please do consider giving us a donation. Um, every little bit helps. I know everyone says that, but it, it really is true. Um, we keep our costs super low so that we can provide these educational services to as many people as possible. And I just would like to thank both of you, Sarah and Gideon. Thank you so much for joining us, for being so frank and honest and open with your discussion. And I would like to also thank everyone for coming along. We've had another bumper attendance. So thank you, everyone. There's loads of comments coming in. Thank you both for your amazing chat. Um, I will be sharing the comment, the chat box with the speakers. So they will see all your comments. They will see the questions that came through that we just didn't have time for. There were literally hundreds of questions. Um, and as always, I try to pick a few questions on the different topics that have come up. So once again, thank you very much and have a lovely evening, everyone. And hopefully you can join us next week for the launch of our souvenir brochure. Bye, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Didian. Thank you.